This week, the three Abrahamic religions, that's Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, have an overlap in their major festivals. You may, you may have known about this. Because here we are, celebrating the freedom from sin that Jesus Christ accomplished through his death and resurrection, which happened almost 2,000 years ago, approaching 2,000 years, at the Jewish feast of the Passover. So, of course, Jews who do not accept that Jesus was the Christ continue to celebrate Passover. And this year, the observance, the Muslim observance of Ramadan, Ramadan is when Muslims believe that uh, the Quran was given to Muhammad. It overlaps with the Jewish and Christian festivals. So, the way that these festivals happen today show three very different ideas of who God is. They reveal different notions of what God is like, how he relates to his people. So when Jesus asks the question, who do you say that I am? Those three faiths give three very different answers to that. Who do you say that? You may have read in the news that these differences have erupted this week into violent conflict. I don't know if you follow news. There was a shooting by Muslim terrorists in Jerusalem, killing two Jewish girls. And that was followed by an Israeli raid of the Al-Aqsa Mosque. The Al-Aqsa Mosque sits on the site of the ancient Hebrew temple. It's on the Temple Mount. That's Solomon's temple. Herod's temple, on the site where Jesus walked and taught, on the site where the Holy Spirit was given at Pentecost. The Jews say the site is theirs because it was the Jewish homeland before Muslims came in the 7th century and conquered that region. The Muslims say the site is theirs because they had it before the Israelis came back in 1948. Whose conquest is more legitimate? Whose war was just? And both, both groups claim to have a God-given right to that place, to that site. And now, there's always intense disagreement about who can pray there and what kinds of acts can be done on that mount. And in that compound, an offense is constantly being taken, constantly, by both Muslims and Jews. And now, guns are firing, rockets are blazing, they're on the edge of a, another war. And the Christian response, in that space, of giving grace, of yielding up space, of forgiving our enemies, of turning to the Lord wherever we are, in whatever sort of space we are. It says a great deal about who we say the Lord is. Who do you say that I am? If you have been worshiping with us through the Lenten season, it, it will probably occur to you, based on what we've been talking about, that the response of escalation, this turning to violence, of taking offense, picking up arms, firing rockets, ruling at all costs, 
is a very fleshly response. It comes from fleshly desires. It's a typical human response. We might even call it normal. It's a normal response to look out for the self. To look at the interests of the self and to look at the interests of whatever group you're a part of. Your tribe. You know, your people. That's normal. To defend the rights of your group. That's a normal human response. It is also the inheritance of the fall. It's the fallen human response into that perfect creation where man and woman walked with God in the joy of his presence, the peace of his presence. Into that, Satan whispered, you can be without limits. You can be without boundaries, without roles, without obedience. And your desires, not God's, could be at the center. And they liked the sound of that. And we like the sound of that. My desires to be at the center. So people have been striving for self-rule ever since that moment. Striving to cast off the rule of God. And national fighting, tribal fighting... That's just an iteration. That's just a, it's a symptom of that basic desire for self-rule. Rule for us. Now, for our celebration today, we are offered something so different that the strangeness of it easily escapes us. And also the familiarity of it can cause us to not take account of it. Today, we are celebrating the most astounding reality. The creator and the ruler of the universe is not like us in his response. He is not like us. He is not like the fallen. Instead, towards those who have offended him, he offers mercy. Towards those who have offended him, he offers forgiveness. He offers a restored life. He offers renewed relationship with him. So let's consider this wonder together. We're in Matthew chapter 28. We need hardly spend any time uh, establishing or talking about the wreck that humans have made of God's world. This is the most self-evident Christian teaching. Human evil, the reality of evil and human destruction, is the most evident the obvious, verifiable Christian teaching. Collectively, we can just glance at the news. Collectively, people cooperate constantly with the forces of evil to steal, to kill, to destroy, to grasp, to hold, striving to make the world more pleasing according to our desires, more comfortable according to our tastes. We go to war over minerals. We go to war over business interests and markets. That's what we do. Collectively, individually, our flesh cries out to have its own way. We use other people, even the person sitting right next to you. We use other people for our own happiness. 
and we ignore our maker. We spend and we spend and we eat and we eat and we drink and we drink and we indulge our desires and we do with these bodies whatever strikes us as the thing to do at the time. But none of this, not even our bodies, properly belongs to us. Because it isn't, isn't it the maker of something that is the owner of it? In this world where offense is so easily taken, where, where we constantly take offense, where rights are invoked and vengeance is sought, we think about this. Who is the most offended party rightly? Who has most cause to claim rights to seek retribution, to get his own back, wouldn't it be the one who owns everything? That's the one who's rightly offended, whose ownership and rights are denied by every person every day. Jesus told a parable about this, about a landlord, you'll remember it, who had a vineyard. He rented the vineyard out to tenants. And he sent to the tenants to get some of the fruit. First, he sent servants to the tenants to ask for some fruit. And not only did they refuse to yield it up, they beat the servants. Some of them they killed. Finally, the landlord sent his own son to the vineyard. Surely they'll respect my son and he'll be able to claim what is his. Jesus says, when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. When Jesus told that parable, he was, he was talking to a crowd and he asked them, what should the landlord do? What, what should the owner of that vineyard do? And without a Beat, they said, he should put those tenants to a miserable death. He should let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him his fruit in due time. Right? Because that would be justice, wouldn't it? That really would. It would be justice. The owner ought to get what belongs to him. It's his. He ought to get that. He ought to get the fruit in the due season. The tenants should perform the role for which they have contracted. They should, and by performing that role, they also enjoy the benefits, their portion, and the landlord enjoys his portion. And those who steal and kill and destroy ought to be punished. These are all oughts, right? This ought to happen. This should happen. We all know it. And of course, Jesus lived out the parable. The Father, the creator of all things, seen and unseen. He called Israel to be a nation of messengers to all the world. To be tenants for him. He sent the prophets to turn his people to them so that they would be yielding up the fruits. That they would be able to enjoy the fruits. That they would be yielding themselves up. He regularly called them to be redeemed. 
to be transformed, to let themselves be restored to relationship to him. That's what the law was all about. Be restored to relationship. But they beat and they killed the messengers. And then Jesus came, son of the father, the heir of all things, co-creator of everything, seen and unseen. And as we've been reflecting through this week, if you attended a Good Friday service somewhere else, both Jews and Gentiles, Hebrews and Romans, all decided the inheritance belongs to them. Let's kill the heir. Then we will have the inheritance. The inheritance belongs to us. The world, they thought, should move according to the plans of Rome or should move according to the dreams of Jerusalem. Let's kill him. Let's have his inheritance. So what should happen when they did this? This thing that Jesus lived out as they killed the heir. What would any kingdom, any tribe, any family do? What should they say should happen if their home was stolen? And if people killed their oldest brother? But we believe in the rule of law. Right? If squatters took over your house, think about your lovely house. If squatters showed up, filled it, killed someone in your family, you would, of course, seek justice. And you would be right to do so. You would be right. Jesus was very clear. He was very clear that this offense was what had happened. This offense is what was unfolding. To all his world, we squatted. We took over what belonged to him. We transgressed the boundaries of our tenancy. We claimed that we would take over, that this would be ours, even this little bit that you inhabit. But what did happen? This is the wonder. Here's what we read, Matthew 28. It was the dawn of the first day of the week, this day that we remember. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to the tomb. There they go. There's an earthquake. An angel of the Lord descends, rolls back the stone. His appearance is like lightning. His clothes white as snow. The guards are terrified. They become like dead men. They're, they're astonished. But the angel says to the women, do not be afraid. For I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here for he has risen as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. And so with this mixture of fear and joy, take, they take off. They're, they're running to the disciples. And then Jesus meets them on the way. And he says, he says, greetings. Greetings. And they fall at his feet. 
And Jesus says, do not be afraid. Go tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and they will see me. God in Christ has overcome death. The one who was offended in every way, in every way possible, who suffered the extremity of what evil could do both in the spiritual realm and in the physical realm. The worst that evil could do, whose rights were denied in every way, whose honors were denied in every way, has overcome it all. And he stands again upon the earth with all power and authority. There's, there's signals in this passage, signals of this strength. There's an earthquake showing that the Lord of all the earth has come, and the earth is subject to him. There's a heavenly messenger burning with glory and brightness. The guards, these, these guards, they're signs of earthly authority. What, what is earthly authority doing in the face of the risen Lord? Trembling, standing as dead. And both the angel and the Lord Jesus have to say, do not be afraid. Because there was every reason to be afraid. Right? Surely they ought to be afraid. Everyone ought to be afraid. Because God has been offended to the highest imaginable degree offended. Sinful voices called for his death. Sinful hands, unclean hands, were laid on the majesty. Sinful hearts demanded his removal. Sinful passions sought to claim his rule. And let's go ahead and put ours right in there. Because in our fallen flesh, we desire all that. To remove him, to set him aside, to get him out of interfering with our lives. And now he's back. Now he's back. And it is time for justice to be done. Surely bring those wretches and put them to a miserable death. That's what ought to happen. Surely he will bring those rebels. That's what ought to be done. It's what we want. It's what we would want. If our house were taken and our family killed. On the evening of that day, when justice ought to be done, he went to where his disciples were gathered together for fear. And he spoke peace. He spoke peace to them. Luke records this. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written. It was always to be this way. This was the plan. That the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. And that repentance 
for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. It is what he always said. My ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. I am merciful. I forgive what ought to be punished. It was always the plan. It was always the plan to offer repentance. Always the plan to offer forgiveness of sins to all nations. And yet, justice has been done. We cry out for justice for a reason. It's built in. Justice must be done. And it has been done. The offense, the offense against the offended has been dealt with. Because a full, sufficient sacrifice for sin has been made on behalf of all people. So instead of acting as we would, doing what we want, the king enters the dungeon, he breaks the chains, he sets the rebels free, sends them out in liberty, and receives the punishment on their behalf. And so you sitting here today, you are among those that he died for. All of you. You're among those he died for to be free. You were imprisoned by your rebellion. Each of us. Chained to our sin. This this is not just about ancient Jews and Romans. It would be right. It would be just for God to destroy us. Because we've tried to rule over what is his. Even the tiny realm that is your life. But because he died, because he overcame death, we don't have to be punished. He offers freedom through surrender to him. Freedom to enjoy the life he designed. He takes what you have taken and he gives it back to you. Freedom to know him. Freedom to explore his everlasting realms everlastingly. So while Muslims and Jews are today fighting over the Temple Mount, fighting over a a space, and our countrymen fight over who should rule in the United States, we're full of conflict. And our friends and our neighbors fight over their rights to happiness and getting their rights, being recognized. We declare that Jesus is Lord, that it's just, it's his. We surrender. We yield it up. He is the Lord, and there is peace, there is happiness, there is freedom in no other way than through him. So if we lay hold of this truth of the resurrection, If we lay hold of the Jesus who is the loving Lord of all, we won't live with absolute attention to ourselves. We won't live with a desperate desire to be at the center of everything. Because to look to him, 
to fix our hope, to fix our affection on Him, is to receive the love of God. To be captivated by Him is to receive His love, to thank Him for His gifts, to express wonder at what He's done, is to become filled with love for Him. Give it a try. Thanks. Wonder. Gratitude. That is to be filled with love for Him. And that reorientation, reorientation to Him is what the restoration of a human being looks like. A restored human life is one that is filled with gratitude for the Maker and for the Redeemer. And you can walk in that restoration on purpose. We can cooperate with it. You can enjoy it. The movement of the renewed life, the, the basic move, is humble thanks. We could not save ourselves. Nor could we fully understand God's plans for the world. But he's defeated death for us and he's offered us forgiveness. And he's offered us a place in his everlasting family. Giving thanks to him in word. Giving thanks in deed. It's how we rightly answer that ultimate question. Who do you say that I am? We say you're the good Lord. We say you're the loving one. We say you're the maker who was offended. And has given us freedom. Jesus is Lord. Lord over all. And he loves me. And he's forgiven us. Forever. And we have forever. Literally. Forever. To enjoy the highest. To enjoy the best. To enjoy the deepest life. Father, these are, these are wondrous things that you have done. And you know our reluctance to give you thanks. You know our tendency to look to ourselves for sufficiency. You know our tendency to look to our own wills, to glorify them. But today, we say, thank you. We want to thank you. And Lord, I ask on behalf of all believers gathered here, that the thanks that is due you would, would sink deeply into us. And that every time we gather together, every time we gather to remember this redemptive work, we would be thankful. That you would fill us with true worship. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.